Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, produced in Sydney, Australia. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now this week, we speak to Michael Melender, who is the editor-in-chief of Guitar Player magazine. Now, Guitar Player are celebrating their 50th anniversary this year, which is an incredible achievement. And it was great to catch up with Michael uh, to tell us what's happening over at GP, how they're celebrating this wonderful milestone, but also to find out a bit more about his backstory, how he ended up as a journalist, his guitar background, and some of the creative projects he's been involved in, including uh, the recent Gretchen Men album. All right, let's get straight to it. Here's my conversation with Michael Melender. Michael Melender, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Man, our pleasure, our great pleasure. Now, this year's a, a, a really big year for you, I guess, as the editor-in-chief of Guitar Player magazine and uh, being the 50th anniversary, and I'd love to speak about that. But first up, how about yourself? I, I want to find out about you a little bit more. What, what was your first experience as a guitar player? What led you to the guitar in the first place? Well, it, I mean, I'm old enough to wear the the Beatles uh, on Ed Sullivan 1964 was the the main thing. Uh huh. Yep. But yep. Uh, but I really didn't know what that meant. I just know that that seemed awesome and magical, and I I should do that, whatever that was. And I think it was a couple of years later when I saw the Who on the Today Show or something. Uh huh. And that's what really <clears throat> that's what really fired it off. You know, it was like all the girls screaming and. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't feel like I look like a matinee idol, and there's Pete Townsend with a nose almost as big as mine. You know, getting all these girls screaming, and I thought <laughs> uh, that's that's what I that's what I want to do. I can do that. Uh, and then, of course, it took a while to actually, uh, you know, figure out what doing that actually meant. You know, surviving a lot of uh, elderly guitar teachers who were correcting the notes on the Beatles sheet music. I was bringing oh, them to wow. teach me to play. Okay. It was, it was, it was tough in the sixties, man. It's like trying to learn rock and roll the, the, the normal way, uh, yeah. you know, the way that your parents would help you pay for the lessons for, you know, was not always the easiest thing in the world. Sure. Sure. So when, um, so what happened with that? When, when did it click into gear or when did you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm making a bit of progress in this rock and roll thing I'm chasing? In terms of your guitar playing? Well, well, I think like most people, you find some friends who have the same, uh, you know, the same experience and, and the same desires. I mean, one thing that the uh, the 97-year-old guitar teachers taught me was chords and things like that. So yeah, I had yeah. a little bit of a head start sure. once, uh, once friends started coming together and saying, you know, they wanted to play songs or jam on, on blues and stuff like that. So it was really that, finding two or three friends who were into it and um and then from there uh i just you know, kind of stumbled into people that had bands and, and um learned from them and then uh decided okay i'm gonna start my own bands and give it a shot so you know mm-hmm. I, i'm sure it's no different than anybody else who's yeah sure. that route. sure do you remember your first guitars um well, acoustics, of course, which were horrible. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think the fir- I found uh, a clone Les Paul uh, at a music store I was taking lessons at, and of course I was like really into Mick Ronson and all that, and Mark Boland. So Les Paul was the thing. Of course, you know, a black one wasn't didn't look like what theirs was, but at least it kind of looked like the same shape. <laughs> Yes. as they were holding so i said i've got to have that and That's of course great. it was just horrible i mean it was like dancing on a tightrope trying to play that thing um and then i think the first real guitar i had was a gibson l6s oh, okay nice also not an awesome choice but oh really it was what i <laughs> well it was funny because I, I had that in my hand i could probably afford that or a Fender Strat, and at that time the Strat just felt like it wasn't really wood. I know that sounds kind of weird, but at least at least where I was, I think it was at Guitar Center in San Francisco, and it just didn't feel good to me. Uh, I mean, I'll, since then, of course, I, I love Strats like all other guitars, but sure. but right then I just kind of felt like ah, the L6S seems like a more meaty guitar, mm-hmm. and um, I probably should have got the Strat, but oh well, regret. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we've all got those guitar stories. You had the fork, which one? Um, yeah. And I don't know about you, but for me, and I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys I know, to get the next guitar, you had to sell the first guitar. And then I don't know if you got that. Did you keep, did you hang on to your guitars? I, 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 at that point, I probably, I probably didn't. You know, mm-hmm. and, and a friend of mine had gotten a real Les Paul with mini humbuckers, and I kind of conned him, quote unquote, into letting me borrow it like for a long time okay. to a point where I was getting phone calls about, you know, you're going to give it back. It actually is my guitar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that would have been a that deluxe, point, a deluxe yeah, with the minis. I, yeah. Yeah. No, that that was a, that was a standard. Oh, I did okay. get a custom. Um, later on uh that actually was uh natural so i i did make it to the mick ronson vibe (laughs) finally nice and you mentioned bands what what sort of things were you doing in bands at that time oh just horrible 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 uh cover bands playing at you know frat houses and stuff like like that um all the all the the typical 70s rock stuff that everybody else played nothing you know i wish i wish there was more <laughs> you know <laughs> awesome stuff to tell you but it was like pretty horrible basically <laughs> but were you digging it were you having a great time absolutely yeah i mean that's the, that's the thing about the guitar i mean it didn't matter how crappy i was or how crappy the bandmates were i mean i just always felt that standing up with this thing across, you know, strapped on to me and having mm-hmm. an amp screen behind me was just the, the, you know, the ultimate bliss. I mean, it, it didn't matter where I was or what I was doing or whether people were throwing beer cans at me or, or clapping. It just, this, yep. this was what I wanted to do. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. I've read that, um, sort of moving into the late seventies, you're really engaging with the, the punk scene in San Francisco, both, both the music and also uh, writing. You're writing by then. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I heard uh, the Sex Pistols, uh, never mind the Bullocks, walking into a record store once, and uh-huh. it was just, you know, I kind of had the same thing that all the punks had, except like a year later, where you know I, I couldn't be Yes, you know, I couldn't be. I, I didn't think I had the talent to be those kind of bands. All, all my friends were like into Prague by then, and it's just like I don't know what to do. I, I can't think that way or play that way and to hear that it was just like oh you know oh my god you know I, I can i can do this i can write songs like this and and have that kind of energy and impact and 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 also the social thing appealed to me you know because i you know being kind of in san francisco during the summer of love and uh, you know the civil rights and women's rights and yeah. all that it's just the fact that the punks were standing up for something more than just wearing you know uh weird shirts on stage or glitter you know mm-hmm. i was like well this is awesome we, we can not i can not only have a good time doing what i love but i can talk about what's going on in society which is extremely attractive sure yes yeah we, so you what sort of writing were you getting into well maybe i should back up did you always love writing as well as a kid did, did that always yeah form part of yeah, you yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i, I knew i wanted to be uh a writer i was writing probably dumb you know stories when i was probably eight or nine and then that obviously uh, translated to writing music as, as well but yeah you know, I, I always wanted to be a writer with a you know a lowercase w <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean what's the lowercase for well as, as opposed to like a, an arrogant snotty writer with an uppercase w gotcha know? gotcha <laughs> That's cool. We you writing? Um, I think I've read you were writing for punk fanzines and things like that at the time as well. I, I started a few and I, and I, and I wrote for a few. I'm, I mean, the thing about the punk thing, like a lot of groups back then, was it was an attractive group to be in. It was more than just music. I mean, it was art, yes. writing, yeah, yeah. painting. You know, there was a whole community around what you would call punk uh culture and yeah. that was a track um it was also scary because of course you walk down the street with green hair spiked up people are going to beat the crap out of you um but uh but i but i guess i actually liked that too it just seemed you know dangerous and kind of dark and you know very romantic i guess uh-huh it's not very romantic to get your butt kicked but you know it's i, I think all of that kind of factored into the community the community sure. and, and why it was such 
I mean, we used to play, uh, I'm sure you know, you've probably heard the Mabuhai Gardens, which was the big San Francisco punk yeah, club on yeah. Broadway. And, yep. and, the mayor, and the mayor at the time would raid the club, you know, on a whim. You'd be sitting there playing and all of a sudden the tax squad would move in because we were so dangerous to society. <laughs> you know, a bunch <laughs> of kids just looking looking different. So, yeah. so it was really a thing about, uh, you know, the power of music, uh, the power of how music's perceived by culture, how to be on the right and the wrong side of that culture. You know, it was, it was really a heavy time for me. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. I think in Australia, I don't know. I mean, I remember the era of course, but by the time a lot of that filtered down here and I don't know, some, some people might disagree, but it it was definitely less of a social force. There was a punk movement down here and there were some great bands like the saints that were maybe proto punk, influences to some of the stuff going on over even you know overseas but um i think this i think the saints started it i mean they didn't look like punks but i think they, i think they you know they were probably the first band in that 70s era that really kicked it off i mm-hmm. mean the sex pistols obviously listened to them and yeah definitely uh, you know so i think i think you i think you lot get the credit for that one yeah nice so we'll <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll jump on that i think i just mean the social movement to me seemed different but then again i was i was younger i was you know sort of around 10 years old so um yeah maybe maybe i'm missing that so you you were talking about writing music and creating and it seemed like um from from what i've learned about you you were you're into creating a lot of things tell me about um street beat that was a a broader kind of a theatrical rock sort of thing what what was that all about uh well i'd always kind of hated how uh broadway had kind of treated rock and i thought you know with the uh, arrogance of youth right well i'm gonna write a real rock and roll (laughs) musical that's gonna be ugly and loud and and really what it's what it's like and um uh once again i didn't quite know what to do but i got lucky because there were uh i had a manager at the time who put me in touch with a, a choreographer and a director and a visual artist and um I basically wrote the libretto for that and had the concept. But once again, I was helped by people uh, putting all the, the things together. And so it was basically a, a rock band with, uh, with, with projections on stage, uh, 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 dancers dancing, uh, uh, bringing the, you know, the, the tableaus to life, so to speak. Uh, there was found sound and sound effects were incorporated yep. into it. And we opened at, um, Bill Graham's Wolfgang Club and the woman who ran it said, uh, you know, I guess called Bill and said, man, you got to come down here. This place is sold out. I don't even know who this band is. <laughs> and uh, and wow. we were helped. So there was a lot of radio promo. I mean, there was a, a ton of luck involved in this, but, you know, the curtain parted and it's a sold out club. I mean, I was I was almost it was almost difficult for me to continue, you know, because it's like because, you know, you just think like, you know, you're you're, you're just absolutely almost gutted with fear about this the curtain's going to open there's going to be three my mom's going to be there and my yeah, dad and, yeah and uh, and to have that actually you know resonate and go over well was you know just a major um you know it was a major a major high for me and that really kind of set the tone for the rest of my life feeling that you know maybe i can i can do this you know of course the downside was you know investors and sharks corralled around and I signed the wrong contract and got swallowed up and you know I ended up with basically nothing out of it but I'm still very proud of what we did because I think that was probably you know one of the first multimedia rock shows in in San Francisco okay and interesting to note that you said yeah so that gave you the confidence to think you could pull off some concepts or pull off a grand effort some sort of creative effort in um yeah in that field but obviously that that seems to have filtered through your life in different areas as well for example moving into commercial journalism um some of the other projects you've worked on the gretchen men album i'd like to, to talk about at some stage as well that's just come out sure your involvement in that How, um what's your earliest um remembrance of guitar player magazine obviously um you're a reader before you before you entered that world uh professionally yeah, it was it was from taking guitar lessons at a local music store and, and just seeing it on the on the racks there, 
And uh, I mean, there was really nothing. This was probably um, early to mid 70s. And of course, there was no other magazines where you saw guitar players on the cover of magazines that, that yeah, I knew. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, maybe Downbeat did, but I wasn't really that into jazz, so I, okay. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see that. Yeah. Um, so I just started buying it. And, uh, and once again, that world was kind of, you know, the, the mysteries that I couldn't figure out on myself, like, like, like hey, I had to get a good tone. Uh, uh, what's available out there as far as strings? What are people like Hendrix and uh, and Alvin Lee and you know all these people using? You know who? How are the records that I like being made? And uh, oh, who's this country guy? I never heard of this guy. And and then the whole thing about you know the jazz guys providing lessons, which I couldn't really understand, but there was something mystical about that, like playing over nights and being so intellectual about everything, which which ultimately wasn't what attracted me attracted me to the guitar and to this day still really isn't but mm -hmm. it just felt like there was this whole world of mystery and wonder and 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 it was just in these pages like it's it's there it's like i don't have to search for it because you know this is obviously pre-internet days it's yeah, like sure it, if you didn't talk to somebody who knew what they were talking about a buddy or whatever you know you were kind of lost you had to figure it out on your own and your buddies weren't always the most reliable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fountains of information sure. either. So yeah, so it was great. It was great to have the guitar player there to be kind of like the arbiter of truth. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've always loved about guitar players, they've, they've embraced a lot of different styles. Um, so for me, I mean, what you're saying really resonates as well. I'm sure lots and lots of people who, um, for whom guitar play magazines been a big part of their life. Um, my my first guitar player was my dad came home would have been the late 80s um and gave me the vernon reed cover story which was uh, um uh. i think joe gore wrote that that story and um it was amazing i had no idea who vernon reed was i hadn't heard of living color at that stage um but i knew all about his story and uh a couple of months later when cult of personality ended up on australian radio um yeah, I felt like I had an in. I felt like I already knew what his rig was like and his whole aesthetic and his philosophy towards that stuff. And um, yeah, amazing, amazing. As as you're saying, it just opened a whole a whole world. Did did you have any favorite covers, or did you your your first guitar player experiences? Do you remember any particular cover stories or things that have stuck with you? Uh, well, probably Jeff Beck. Um... I think, I think Jeff Beck was probably the earliest one I can I can remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, pr pretty much everything. Like, I mean, I, I wasn't really that into if they had a, a pedal steel player on the cover or something like that. Sure. But, but all all the rock and jazz guys, I was you know, I was definitely attracted to. Yeah. I mean, I I just wanted to absorb as much as as, as possible within sure. reason. Like, you know, at that point, I was fairly uh, you know afraid of jazz and snotty about country but definitely you know <laughs> um, you know rock and i was way into that yeah great um i may be skipping some years but how does how do you go from in your local um music shop flicking through guitar player waiting for your guitar lesson how do you end up uh coming on staff or what, what's your entry into music journalism at all perhaps uh i uh I had a bit of a career as a as a player in in uh, in, in Europe. You know, met my first wife there. Mm -hmm. Came back to the United States and opened a recording studio. Yeah, I was kind of bummed out by that. It wasn't what I expected. I mean, I was working with a lot of bands that just, you know, didn't seem to be that good, and it was kind of a drag. So I, I was moping around the house, and and she was reading the paper, and she said, uh, "Well, you know what? You've got a journalism degree. Here's this magazine that." says they need an editor why don't you quit moping around the house and go see if you can get this job uh -huh. so that that was for uh electronic musician uh okay. yep. which was was also uh, a part of mix magazine in those days and like you know which sometimes happens with me if i if i walk in and i just i'm, I'm so dean martin about it like i don't care <laughs> it, it usually ends up usually ends up being handed to me, which <laughs> doesn't always work. And, and I didn't do that as some kind of psychological ploy, but 
I just went, oh, I'm getting tossed out of the house to have to look for a job. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and they offered it to me and, uh, you know, it was awesome. At first I thought, this is so not rock and roll. Uh, how am I going to deal with this? And then it just turned out to be, you know, it kind of refired up my love for, for writing and editing. Yeah. And, uh, and it turned out to be, you know, an extremely beneficial, you know, part of, you know, thing to happen in one's life. When you say not very rock and roll. Well, I, I just, you know, I, I, I came back from playing, I came back from playing, uh, you know, in Europe, you know, opening up for big bands and all that. And I just had that snotty, stupid, selfish, <laughs> arrogant attitude that, you know, I was better than these, you know, jerks that were writing about it. You know, I was actually doing it. <laughs> yeah. It was it was so mean and so arrogant and so stupid and so wrong. But I still had a part of that, you know, rock star, that awful rock star, you know, vibe just coursing through my veins and it was ugly and horrible and i'm glad that you know, i was able to delete that from my life eventually but but right then i was just looking at them and going like you know you guys are a bunch of wallies what the hell you know <laughs> yeah so but you end up inside the tent as well i guess but i think i think what's great with you you, you seem to have brought that some of that punk aesthetic that do-it-yourself aesthetic and make it happen um sort of attitude with with your work well, I mean, in publishing, it's like, you know, you have to make it work on your own, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it's not like, you know, we're writing software and getting gazillions of dollars, you know? Uh -huh. it's, uh, publishing has always been a struggle to serve the readers and serve the advertisers and do something good with uh, a couple of nickels to rub together. So, yeah, that, yeah that, that punk aesthetic, you know, actually has kind of saved me at times in my life. Uh-huh. So writing for electronic musician, um, I, I guess your your background in studios and your passion for recording must have served that area well. How did you eventually end up at guitar player? Well, I got I got once again I got lucky at at EM because I did have that passion for recording, and it was basically kind of a computer magazine, mm -hmm. and the home studio thing was starting to explode about the same time that. The editor left, and I was promoted to um, editor in chief. So I kind of switched, along with the staff, the the focus of the magazine to be more about home recording and okay. less about just software tools and, and do-it-yourself uh, gizmos and stuff like that. Sure. So, so the magazine grew exponentially because the industry was pointing in that direction as well. What year are we talking about here? This is kind of mid nineties. This, this is probably ninety-three-ish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I kind of undeservedly got a lot of credit for being the visionary of that whole thing, but it was basically a, a team effort. I mean, definitely my interests were there, but there were a lot of great editors that um, and writers that helped, you know, make that happen. Obviously, as well as as well as the business people. Mm -hmm. uh, and guitar player was perceived by the publishers as being in a bit of a lull right then. There was a lull in. Uh, circulation there was a lull in in ads uh the magazine was kind of perceived as as arrogant so a lot of manufacturers weren't up for supporting it okay. so they um they w went after me and said i think you're you know the guy to you know transition this magazine you know back to a place where it can be uh you know good for the readers and good for the the advertisers um i resisted them once because i didn't want to make the change i was going through a divorce from the first wife and it just seemed like you know a divorce and a new job was a little bit too much to handle so uh richard johnson got the job uh who was a bass player but he did a great job managing guitar player for a year mm -hmm. and then they came uh back to me and i said okay now the timing's right and they moved richard to bass player uh the editor of bass player and me a guitar player and you know and that's that's how it happened okay now, what what's the challenge of taking that on? Then, if the if the publishers have got a certain expectation or they see a certain problem with with the magazine, um, yeah, what's what are your first steps? Well, I mean, without stepping on any toes, I mean, you know, I can see that a lot of the editors at that time just weren't wired the way that that I was. I mean, I was kind of a socialist where everybody could do everything. Um, everybody can contribute and the way it was kind of set up 
previous to me was like certain people were, you know, they were the cover story writers or you were the gear writer or you were the lesson writer. And in and a, and a lot of ways that, you know, there wouldn't be any crossover. Like if Art Thompson wanted to write a cover story, it would be, well, uh, oh, no, you can't do that. You're the gear guy. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think there was any standard mandate. It just kind of worked out that okay. way. Yeah, sure. And and also, I mean, I've always viewed what I do as a job like anybody else. I mean, I don't, except for that really horrible uh, period of where I thought I was a rock star, please forgive me for that world. Um, you know, I, I really did develop into, you know, it's just a job you do the best you can. You know, it's kind of like my, my I can see my dad echoing in my head. You know, it's just like, you know, you, you sit there and you, you do the job and you go home and you know better than anybody else. So, so that, that, the, the kind of um, egotism that was around the magazine uh, did, well, like I said, I'm not criticizing anybody, but I just wasn't wired that way. So immediately what I tried to do is make everybody could do everything. That upset some people on the staff. You know, mm -hmm. well, oh, now Art Thompson do a cover story? How's that going to work out, you know? Well, of course, it worked out great because people were, uh, you know, uh, enthused about doing uh, things. I, I also couldn't see how you could uh, segregate certain aspects of the magazine production and make it successful you know you can't just say oh you know all you can do is lessons that's all you're going to do you know it's like there's 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 more work that needs to be done than there are staffers typically so you know you kind of have to be able to multitask so um you know i've tried to be long so so the challenge was to get the staff engaged and happy and get people who really believed in the magazine not that the not that some people didn't but just were willing to set their egos aside and do the best for the magazine rather than the best for their byline. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and once again, I'm treading very lightly here because I respected everybody who worked for the magazine. And I certainly respected the people who, you know, were there who decided to leave, you know, they were, you know, they're all awesome and talented, but I think what we ended up with was a, a staff that was willing to work together a lot more, uh, joyfully uh and a lot more collaboratively and as a result um you know we increased uh circulation by i think over thirty thousand the first year completely redesigned the magazine uh manufacturers were less concerned you know they felt that our arrogance had dissipated um we were willing to work with them more on reviews and everything else and uh you know, for a time, it became extremely, extremely rosy. And, you know, and once again, um, it looked like I was forging this, but I was just a part of something that, uh, you know, worked out. You know, everybody was, you know, one for one, one for all. It's interesting hearing a bit of this backstory because as a reader, you know, I'm not picking up any of that vibe at all. I'm, I'm just still seeing GP. There's some different names coming through. There's some names sort of hanging around and... Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess it's with any organization when you're involved in the running and being part of it, you see the you see the behind the scenes stuff obviously, but for I think um yeah, as a reader on the other very much on the other side, um you just see guitar player changing, growing, shifting gears a little bit. I guess with any big organization though, Michael, there's going to be some there's going to be shifts in management and style oh, yeah. and and all that stuff, so um, well, one thing I really appreciate about the staffs were even back to the first sale, you know, when, um, you know, Jim Crockett uh, sold it, which was fairly, you know, that was a pretty seismic move, uh, uh -huh. you know, through anything that I had to go through or anything any of the editors had to go through or, or having to go through uh, the challenges of producing a, a, a magazine today when resources are not um, as bountiful as they were, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. The staffs are, have always been awesome and not letting the readers know that there were challenges, uh, sometimes, you know, incredible upheavals going on. Uh, and they always just put out a class, a classy product. So I've always appreciated that about everyone who's ever worked for that magazine. They, they never let it, they never let the public see, you know, uh, the challenges. Sure, sure. Um, you talk about resources. It's, I find it interesting that two of the big areas of your life, namely um, recording recording and print media, have um, 
have experienced a massive upheaval, upheaval uh, with the with the digital revolution that we're deep deep within at the moment. What what's your take on that, and how do you respond to that as a magazine editor and someone who loves recording? Well, at first at EM, you know, because I had spent a career having my hand slapped every time I reached for a fader in the big studios, I think I was probably uh, too much of an evangelist for the home thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's take the power back, give it to the musicians. Um, that's where, you know, let's put the, the power to uh, manifest their work in the hands of the actual creators. Um, but I never wanted all the cool studios to close. That wasn't part of the deal. But, sure. uh, but you know, that, that happened. And I think that that's, that was incredibly sad. I think we've lost a legacy of, of sound production that probably uh, that may not ever come back. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, there's the, and that you know, there's there's the good side of it where anything you produce, as long as there's you know content there or a song that people love, it doesn't matter whether it sounds a little thin or whether it has full bandwidth or whether it's a little distorted. Uh, I mean, I can see where that's that's uh you know a wonderful thing you know it just it's on the content not necessarily the delivery system sure on the other hand there was a lot to be said for uh professional engineers who spent their lives learning how to get the most you know wonderful beautiful guitar sound out of yeah. a guitar and or, or the drum set and you listen to some of those records in the you know 70s and 80s and they still um whether they sound dated or not the sounds are are awesome so and it's it's a mixed bag on that one sure. and um you know everybody who has a you know a, a laptop and a and recording software isn't necessarily a great producer or engineer obviously yeah um so i think a lot of stuff out there uh sometimes you know m- you know with me remembering what it was like it's kind of hard to listen to some tracks and go oh god you know if only a real pro had done this it would be awesome uh-huh <laughs> but but you know, you just you just have to accept accept it for what it is and move on. And the same with with publishing. I mean, I, I knew my music career was going to go up and down. I, I never thought that the communication arts were going to be challenged. I mean, I look today where writers aren't really valued that much. A lot of media companies don't really pay for writers. Um, I mean, obviously the Huffington Post, it's all volunteer work for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and that and that's been that's been tough because I've seen uh, a lot of awesome writers and editors that I went to uh, journalism school with or met along the way that you know are working selling cars or working at you know whatever just to, or working as teachers just to try to make ends meet. I mean their careers have been ended by uh, how the communication arts have kind of morphed into what it is today. So mm-hmm. you know I'm sad about it. Uh, um, I'm sad that we've lost a lot of talent that, that doesn't have an outlet anymore. I'm sad that, uh, you know, people don't seem to take writing that seriously a, as a whole. Um, but like I said, what can you do? I don't, I don't want to be that old grandpa screaming at the kids to get off the lawn. You know, it's like uh, it, it is the way it is. And and I think that on the upside, um, the fact that I as a writer can now use video and audio and have like multimedia experiences on the web is, is awesome. You know, I can be a little film director about a gear review or, or anything else. Um, you know, Instagram is a great way to get your point across in 60 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's some of the challenges are, are awesome challenges that, yep. that I, that I really love. Yeah. Cool. I guess all this, um, this give and take of, of this time we're in now, um, makes 50 years of guitar player, in print, all, all the more remarkable, really. Um, it's an amazing achievement, given that, as you said, a lot of uh, a lot of print media and people involved in that have been moved aside or moved into into other areas. Um, tell me more about some of the successes at, at GP. You know, we spoke about the challenges of uh, when you first came in and, and rebuilding the whole idea. There's been some great innovations in the last few years. Some of the awards that really weigh a lot now uh, were instigated uh, under your time at GP? Well, I mean, you, you always got to try to 
come up with something that's going to resonate and kind of excite and educate the guitar community. So, uh, you know, we have tried to do that uh, with the guitar superstar competitions, with the, the Hall of Fame, which is basically back to what they did in the 70s with the Gallery of the Greats and all that yeah, as yeah. well. We, we've just kind of uh, tried to, you know, bring it back for the, the, the modern era. Um, and I mean, it, it's all just about, um, you know, what can you do that's good for the guitar community that will help it grow or, or get some excitement in it. I mean, obviously we have to do more than just, uh, uh, you know, write stuff. We actually have to be out there and, and do stuff as well. Um, I'm really proud that we've got, uh, the Ronnie Montrose award for young players, which, uh, you know, recognizes teens who are have transcendent talent because mm-hmm. you know they're they're the future obviously so um we've we've tried to go out there and 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 do uh and, and do a lot for the community mm-hmm. the lifetime achievement award that that seems to hold um a lot of cultural capital particularly you know to to i mean lots of organizations come up with awards but uh, in terms of the guitar community people that's a very special one yeah, and we've had a, you know, we've had we've had good reaction, good reaction to that, and uh, you know, it's always a nice argument, you know, amongst the staff of who actually you know, gets it every year. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that's always fun. Too, How do you, you know? actually arrive at that? That's that's a good a good thought, good point. How do you get to uh, well, who do you we, choose? Well, I mean, we we do have the pasta from the Gallery of the Great. So some some of the you know people like Les Paul, et cetera, they've uh, they've already been. Uh, honored. Although I did, as I think you know, I started this Certified Legend Award yep. to actually kind of recognize those people while they were still alive. So mm-hmm. that was awesome to be able to get uh, Les Paul before he passed, and yes, you know, yeah. Nookie Edwards, and Wayne Eddy, you know, who are you know, you know, I think I think still around, but uh, you know, so th- that's been awesome as well. But uh, basically, it's just you kind of know who's out there. It's probably no different than you know the football hall of fame or whatever and then once you look at who we haven't recognized in the past and who still needs to be recognized mm-hmm. then it just gets down to a debate you know? yeah and sure. uh, and uh you know hopefully you know we don't raise our voices too much <laughs> nice um so what are you doing to celebrate what's what's planned for this year this landmark year well we've uh we're putting a lot of legacy content into the magazine as, as you probably noticed yeah, you know yeah. going back in the archives and trying to look at the really cool stuff that we did in the 60s 70s 80s and 90s that, that's been a lot of fun to go through the archives and look for um you know look for things um and we even did this thing called a uh, weird scenes inside the gp archives where we just found some of the weird stuff they did back then mm-hmm. like uh, stories on guitar stamps or guitar in prison or let's interview the wives of famous guitar players. You know, I mean, there, there's some real, you know, you, you don't want to take, you know, you don't want to criticize them, but it, it is nice to look at them and kind of have like a little bit of a whimsical smirk about what was considered news back in, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Sure, sure. Um, uh, I'm also trying to put together a 50th anniversary concert for somewhere around the fall. That, that's still in, in process. Mm-hmm. Um we're doing uh, a lot of cover stories to try to uh, look back at uh, at what guitar means to the community and and as far and move forward with it. You know, we don't want to be dinosaurs, certainly. So yeah, sure. we just did this cover story on who will save the guitar, which talks very uh, honestly about the challenges of getting new players to keep playing and what the industry is doing about that and there was even a section about you know our guitar magazines uh, part of the problem you know mm-hmm. are we too obsessed with the hendrixes and the becks and the claptons and we're not uh serving the needs of of uh you know kids who are coming up today you know are, are we really inspiring them as much as those guys inspired us so we're trying to ask some hard questions you know the cover story after that will be about 50 uh you know, sensational women players. It's about time that, you know, we gave, I mean, I've always figured that guitar playing doesn't really know what, you know, what race or what sex it is. It's just the guitar and Absolutely. some 
yes. some body is holding on to it and that body is either making good sounds or bad sounds. Yeah, but yeah. let's face it, I think, you know, the guitar journalism community is, has not always been uh, as open to female players as, as it should have been. So, you know, we're trying to, you know, make big inroads to that, make big, big inroads with beginners. So I think, you know, to quit blabbing about it, I think the 50th anniversary for us will have some uh, events uh, in the fall, but also I think that we need to honor the legacy of the magazine and continue to open our doors to anyone who wants to play, you know, whether that's someone who just wants to make uh, noise or make a backing track or a loop for a sample or somebody who can play like Ingve Momstein, you know, yeah, we yeah. just have to open it and embrace it. I mean, we know we want the guitar to always be vital and cool and, and awesome. And, uh, I think for, you know, GP can't be a dinosaur. Uh, it has to continually be progressive. So, so that, that's really what this 50th anniversary year is about. This is, it's as much about looking to the future as it is about honoring the magazine's past. Yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. You know, I really think GP's always been good at that though. Um, I, I remember reading, um, the, the, uh, Johnny Marr cover story had uh, an Ingve feature inside it, and the next month I was learning all about Sonic Youth, and um, and even now you, you've got stories about Novella, who's a great you know, ambient noisemaker, um, alongside some downtuned heavy metal dude, um, which is wonderful. So to celebrate that and to push that forward, I think can only be a great thing. Yeah, well, I mean, they they set the the mold back in the, you know, back in '67. You know, we're mm -hmm. just trying to keep it moving forward. Awesome, that's very cool. And yourself, you've stayed busy and creative um, this whole time. By by the looks of things, you've got a very cool band, The Trouble with Monkeys, where your <laughs> whole your whole mode is punked up monkey songs. That that seems like a perfect, uh, one perfect place for you to be playing guitar. Yeah, yeah, that that has been, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a great band. I love all the people in it. Um, mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, every time we play, uh, people get. I mean, I know everybody says this, but you know, everybody seems to enjoy it. Like those monkey songs are just whether you're, whether you're twenty or, or sixty, they're they're just so good, uh, you know, and that and so joyous that mm -hmm. it, it's. But once you add like a really obnoxiously loud guitar behind them, you know, it's uh, it's even better, I think. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's the whole power pop recipe, isn't it? Like fantastic oh, pop yeah, tunes with, with an angry guitar. I, I can't think of many things I enjoy more. Yeah, it's uh, and, and, and that also the band also allows me to test, you know, gear for the magazine and in real world situations. So yeah, it's, nice. uh, you know, it's a it's a it's it's a multitasking it's a multitasking thing, but, but, but also, I mean, it's just, once again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 61 now, but I still love jumping up and down like a teenager. I mean, the guitar has been so important to my, uh, to my life, whether I look like some crazy old man or whether I looked cool if I was trying to in my twenties, you know, uh -huh. it has always been there to guide me and always been there to, uh, you know, to challenge me and always been there to give me give me joy that it's just, it's just, it's just such a lifetime thing. You know, I mean, if you, if you don't uh, allow your ego to get involved, like, well, well, maybe I look too old or maybe I weigh too much, or mm -hmm. maybe I don't have hair or, or maybe I should play better or maybe I should have a better amp or maybe I should have a better guitar. If you just throw that stuff out of there and just enjoy it for what it is, then, I mean, there's so many possibilities that better open. I mean, I mean, you know, if you ask me, at 20, if I'd still be doing this, you know, 40 years later, I'd say, are you kidding me? I hate people who are 35 who get on stage now. They're too old. <laughs> you know, I mean, like in the, in the punk days, it was like if you were, you know, in your 30s, we didn't, we didn't even want you on stage with us. You know? yeah. And I think that also, you know, one good thing about culture moving forward is like younger uh younger people today because we've played at, at Gilman Street with teenagers and you know that they're not as ageist as my generation was back then I mean mm -hmm. their whole thing is like if you play something cool you know we dig it and, and I think that's a lot more positive way to be than it might have been in my era <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely hey another um, 
Another project you've recently been involved with is Gretchen Men's new record, which is which yeah. is fantastic. It's, we um I had stunning, isn't it? Isn't oh, that record stunning? Incredible, incredible. Um I, I You talked to her too, didn't you? Yeah, I we uh we had Gretchen on the show last year and um oh. we've uh we've seen I've got to chase her up, but we've had brief messages about um talking about the new record, which would be great. But it's um it's an incredible re- her first record, Hail Souls, was great, but this is um a very different place and uh, represents a whole lot of progression. Tell me about your role in in this album. Well, I've always I've always been buddies with with Gretchen, and uh, I kind of got on a little bit of a, a soapbox just talking. Um, we had coffee once, and I said I have an idea for you, and and she thought she's kind of said funnily to the to the to the press or that I was going to tell her that she needs to sing. Because okay. I guess everybody's been telling her that, you know, she needs to sing and play guitar and she's not interested in it. But, uh-huh. but, but I just said, hey, if you make another Hail Souls 2, what I worry about, as awesome as a player you are, you're just going to be in the same old bag as everybody else trying to do instrumental guitar records. There's not a huge market for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not that you can't be famous and, and lauded and all that and sell records, but it's tough. And wouldn't you like to do something bigger than that? You know, something like that. Uh-huh. And, and she went, well, what are you talking about? And it's like, well, uh, and this harkens back to Street Beat, where finally I was getting my mojo back to look at bigger projects. After being burned by that one, it took me a few decades to actually get over the fact <laughs> I was so stupid to sign the contracts I right. did. But but I, but I still had that desire to put a, you know, a multimedia production together. So um, I said... I'd like to do uh, a multimedia show based on uh, Dante's Inferno. And, and she was thinking about doing something bigger. Uh, I forget actually what author she was going to try to kind of do some music evoking some short stories. And she said, uh, that is, you know, awesome. That, that's, 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 that's great. That's what, that's what I want to do. Now, in my mind, I was thinking that, she would do something like Hail Souls, except uh, maybe more melodic and more cinematic and that, that can bring the, the various levels of, of hell that are talked about in Dante's Inferno to life. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then we would have a stage show and blah, blah, blah. What I didn't expect was that she was going to get so uh, obsessed with the project that she would study classical <laughs> arrangement you know, and spend all this time uh, expanding her scope to an unbelievable level yeah, that yeah. she was actually able to write, you know, for string quartets and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And what, so what came back, I mean, it took, you know, two ish years for this to happen, but when she finally started showing the music to me, it was just, uh, it was light years ahead of what I envisioned. I mean, she took such a huge step forward. I mean, there's still, there's still Gretchen, the awesome guitar player there, yep. but there's also Gretchen, the extremely talented arranger and, and composer there as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it's just, uh, it's. I mean, you've you've heard the record, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Be. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's there's, I mean, that's that's, uh, and to me, it it did what I was hoping it would do. It would take her outside of just doing another uh, instrumental guitar record into something that is guitar based certainly but Mm -hmm. that hopefully anybody who even you know could care less about the guitar will go oh my god this is unbelievably awesome music you know that that was really my dream for her that she would transcend the normal uh, guitar instrumental thing and move on to something where she could be uh uh you know a a film composer or whatever you know Mm. And, and i think i think it's absolutely done that oh definitely and the um the production, Daniela Gattardo's production is fantastic. Um, and it's interesting um, how she, she how Gretchen dug into composition at a whole deeper level because her background um, was as a classical guitarist, but it seems like um, she dug in way deep and, and pulled out so many great compositional ideas and, as you said, kept the guitar um, in there. But there's also some beautiful violin and some, um, some vocal work. So the voices are shared around. So I mean, basically, what I did is once I came up with the the 
the concept was I, I wrote the libretto for each piece, so there was a context to, to write on, and uh, and and that's part of the booklet you get with the the record. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I just acted as kind of a production consultant for consultant for the mixes, and I mean we were everyone was so. Uh, you know, obsessed with making sure that everything was right. That I mean, you know, between uh, Daniele and in Italy and Gretchen and I here in the United States. Uh-huh. I mean, I think every song probably had, I don't know, fifty emails <laughs> about what to do with the mixes. So it wow. was it was quite a, it was quite a project. Fantastic. So as a librettist, I think you've you've covered this. So how I'm just wondering how that works practically. So your you're taking Dante's Inferno, and what are you doing with that? I haven't actually read the book. I've only heard the digital recordings. So how does oh, okay. that how does that translate to then something well, Gretchen it, works on? Well, it started out where we would just pick uh, pick the um, the circles of hell that were interesting and uh, were interesting to her uh, and me, and then uh, we'd write about it. But but throughout the process, while she was writing. I was thinking, you know, I, I didn't just want to uh, emulate uh, Dante. I wanted to kind of bring this journey into um, 2016, 2017, and the modern era. And, and that was a little bit more daunting than I thought, actually, because, uh, you know, how do you do something without being pedantic or being too, uh, you know, twee about it? You know, sure. um, I, I wanted it to be almost like you know Hemingway-esque in the fact that it was just kind of a simple truth you know um so I kind of flipped out a bit about that I felt like I'm never going to be able to do this I, I don't have the chops for it I'm, I'm sucking blah 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 so it went through a number of um rewrites but I finally got something that I felt that I could imagine the circles of hell in a way that resonated with modern life you know uh even though dante had obviously touched on these because mm-hmm. of sins but you know what what arrogance means today you know what uh what violence means today mm-hmm. what yeah, um yeah. you know political uh uh what, what politics means today and um and so that that's really what kind of saved me and then it was just a matter of getting the language to the point where it wasn't overly flowery flower, flowery sorry uh and actually just uh, to the point and also knowing that this was going to be on a on a CD cover, it, it had to be short. Also, Gretchen had bought in Max Christ to do some amazing visuals. He's a photographer and visual artist. Mm-hmm. So I also didn't want to write so much that, um, you know, you had like this great photo and then like a million words obscuring what it is. So, so that was the next thing is to kind of cut everything down to the point where uh, – you know, it was almost like Twitter writing. Like, you know, how how can I use the the fewest amount of words and not feel uh-huh. like I'm I'm the reader? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course Gretchen had her um her comments on it as well as did Max. So uh, finally we got down to something that that hopefully hopefully works. And and, and I'm I'm you know I'm actually I'm very seldom happy with stuff I do, but I'm actually hap- a lot very happy with this. Fantastic. That's awesome. Well, yeah, it's a brilliant album. It's it's really hard to say any much more about it um, verbally that really does it justice because it's just an incredible record. And um, I love that it's a, a bigger concept and that you're part of that. That's fantastic. What what else is coming up for you? I guess, I mean, the GP stuff this year is obviously going to be a big focus. Are there any other creative works you've got on the side that, you've, uh, that you want to get started or you're working on? Uh, well, yeah. Uh... I'm trying to put together a book of 20 years of being editor of GP. I mm-hmm. mean, just, uh, you know, by, by hook or crook or luck, I'm kind of, I'm the longest sitting editor of the magazine. Yeah, so. I should have mentioned that. Absolutely. That's a big deal. Yeah. So I wanted to put together um, some of the, the bigger interviews that I've done since, you know, being there in 1997 um, or starting there in 1997. So, so, so there's that. Um, the, the trouble with monkeys got a, a deal through universal where they wanted us to do uh, uh, half of the monkey songs punked up and then half uh, original songs in the, in the, uh, the style of the monkeys. So mm-hmm. I'm working on that with the band. Um, I'm also uh, 
you know, Daniele has decided that now he wants to do a concept album based on Dante's Purgatorio. So okay. I'm working with him uh, as far as coming up with something, um, you know, on, on the same level as Gretchen. You know, can I come up with a libretto or uh, something that would that would uh, help the pieces that he's writing? Okay. Yeah. Or, or, or in, inform the pieces he's writing. I, I'm not sure whether Max is going to be involved with that as a visual artist or not. But sure. but you know, Gretchen's idea is like you know had to have this team yep, um yep. where you know she's exhausted from doing inferno you know dante does purgatorio and then maybe she comes back and does and does you know the third volume um cool. you know later on that so, sounds really cool yeah so i think i think that'll be uh, a, a lot of fun uh, i got guitar player records started up again so uh we're doing our first release called awesome instrumentals which mm -hmm. is uh, storm weather which is uh uh, guitar instrumentals based on concept of a emotional or a meteorological storm. Okay. Um, once again, did that equitably. There, there's the, the format for these um, uh, guitar player records. Instrumentals is you know two stars. So for the first one, I've got you know Steve Hunter and Anna Popovic. Yeah. And then uh, four men, four women. Okay. So it's you know, of all different styles and ages. So it, it's a, it's going to be. A, you know, very stylistically and, you know, diverse. So I'm really, I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Cool. Did Jude Gold yeah. get a track on one of those records? Did he I did, read that yeah. right? Yeah. Jude Gold needs to actually get me the track for that record, but okay. Uh, <laughs> Jude, if you're listening, please turn it in. Hey man, we had Jude on the yeah. show a little while ago and he was fantastic to talk to as well. So, um, yeah, I love, I love his stuff. So yeah, man, get that track in. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it should be it should be a good year. I mean, I, as you said, most of my focus is just to make sure that the magazine gets its due. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, and then uh, and then yeah, if I get to have a personal life in between that, that would be awesome. That so, sounds yeah. good if you can squeeze that in. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. You, you've obviously got so much going on. Um, so I really appreciate you. Um, spending the time with us today and for me it's a thrill because I've, I've read your stuff for a long time um so to actually meet you is pretty cool for me as well and to to find out a little bit more about you your own backstory as well so yeah thank you so much for um for being on the guitar speak podcast today well, you've, you've been very nice to invite me I, I really appreciate that and and thank you so much I, and uh i hope you have an awesome year ahead as well All right, that was my conversation with Michael Melender. I so enjoyed meeting him. That was really cool and uh, really amazing to hear about his career and how it led him to GP, all the wonderful stuff GP is doing this year and, and the amazing impact that magazine has had on the guitar community all around the world. Very, very cool. Now, after the interview, I emailed Jude Gold. I said, hey, man, where's his track? Where's that recording? And uh, he, he emailed back. He was recording the lead guitar that very day, in fact. So that was kind of cool. I was already speaking to Michael. We'd already traded a few emails, but Jude um, was one who said, hey, you might, you might like to talk to Michael about the 50th anniversary of Guitar Player. So thank you again, Jude. Also, since the interview with Michael, since I recorded it, I have read the libretto which accompanies the Gretchen Men album and it obviously adds a lot of depth. I knew, I knew the story and the narrative in a broad sense, but seeing how it was specifically reimagined for that project was um, really cool and, yeah, adds so much to the music. Um, I've been in touch with Gretchen. We are going to speak in the next few weeks about that album, Abandon All Hope, so I'm really looking forward to that as well. All right, thank you so much for tuning into the Guitar Speak podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or plenty of other places where you get your podcasts. We're on Facebook and Instagram and also guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com. For those of you, if you're enjoying the episodes, um, why not share them around? That, that makes a, a great difference to us. And we always love to hear from you on any of those forums, those social media forums as well. Awesome. Good stuff. We've got some big interviews coming up. I'm interviewing one of my childhood heroes this week. So excited. Can't wait to share that with you, plus a bunch of other interviews I've already done. So do not adjust your set. Stay tuned. 
and I'll catch you next time on the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling. See you next time.